prisoner down the hallway to his doom. I stood up to say goodbye like all the rest. And I heard him tell the warden just before he reached my cell. Let my guitar play in friend to my request. Let him sing me back home with a song I used to hear and make my old memories come alive. This is our American stories, and all this week we're playing the best of the past year. Stories that you've told us are your favorites, and we're bringing them right back to you. And sing me back home before I die. This is Lee Habib. You're listening to what I think is Merle Haggard's best song, and it's my favorite, and it is a sad song. It's a beautiful song. And for the hour, we're going to celebrate Merle's life. And every year, we'll replay this on the day he was both born and died. Because he's one of those rare human beings who his life began and ended on the same day. And so to tell a story properly, we figured we'd let Merle tell it to you. And we'd love to do that on our American stories. No opinions here. I mean, you heard which my favorite song was, but that's not exactly an opinion. Let's talk about his early life, and let's have him tell you about his fascination with trains. I lived uh, in, an, in an oil community uh, called Oildale, and, and uh, there was a, a daily train that went into the oil fields, and it was a steam train back in those days, and and uh, I actually grew up... Uh, Every evening, you know, kind of looking forward to seeing that old train pull out of there with about 40 or 50 oil tankers back during the war, you know. And, and uh, my dad worked for the Santa Fe Railroad. I was nine when he passed away, but uh, I think probably the first time I ever jumped on that old oil tanker was probably I was about, about five years old. My mother would have died if she had known I'd been up there. We used to put... Uh, pennies on the track, you know, and we'd, we'd hop that old train, ride a block or two and jump off. So it was something we we learned to do young. And we'd watch the brakeman and the trainmen do it. You know, it wasn't really all that hard. Very matter of fact about a, a pretty hard scrabbled existence he had. A lot of the Okies had moved out to this part of California, the Bakersfield area. And a lot of people don't think of California as an oil state, but it still is. Drive up there, and there they are. The rigs are everywhere. And Merle, we're celebrating his life, the unique Bakersfield sound he created. Not really country, not really rock, not really anything but Merle Haggard. There's nothing else you can say. Or classic country. He had a bad experience on a train in Oregon. There's a lot of bad experiences. I I, I got on a a freight in Oregon one time, and it was leaving out of Eugene, and it, and it went up into the into the Cascades and uh, into a snowstorm. And I was in it, traveling in the ice compartment, and it uh, me and two other 
oboes was in there, and it, it got rather cold in that metal. I remember they stopped up in the mountains and then uh, climbed up out of that ice compartment, and I'm shaking so bad that I dropped my suitcase off the top of the freight, and I had to get off for a while and get, my, get her up my clothes. <laughs> and as you're going to learn as we go along, this rough style of mix of musics, that twangy fender, the unique mix of steel, guitar sounds, new vocal harmony styles, a little bit of jazz thrown in there, believe it or not. Almost country jazz. Had a lot to do with this life and the trains and the and the being an outcast in a bit in a bit of a way. Not really you couldn't put Okies living in California in a category. And they were outcasts. So why was he incorrigible as a child? I was a uh... To say the least, probably the most incorrigible child you could think of. I, I, I was just—I was already on the way to prison before I realized it. Actually, I was just—I was really a kind of a screw up. But uh, and I really don't know why. I think it was mostly just out of boredom, boredom, and, and lack of a father's attention. I think. Lack of a father's attention. I think. I think he knew that actually, and that father had died. When he was young. And that can impact a boy and impact a man and change everything. And we talk about that a lot here on Our American Stories. But as we'll learn later, Merle Haggard will tell you he could not have been Merle Haggard if he didn't lose his father. If he had not gone to prison. He was 14 when he was put in his first juvie home. The authorities put me in there for for truancy, for not going to school. And uh, they gave me a... Six months in like a road like a road camp situation, and I ran off from there and stole a car. So then the next time I went back, it was for something serious. And then I, I spent the next seven years running off from places. I, I think I escaped uh, seventeen times. That's pretty incorrigible. And how did he escape from these institutions? There was different uh, different institutions and different methods. There was uh, some of them were uh, minimum security, some were maximum security, and some of them were kid joints, and some of them were adult jail houses. And I just didn't stay nowhere. I was just uh, I think Willie Sutton was my idol. If you don't know, you know, at the time I I was in a, in the middle of of becoming an outlaw and. Uh, Escaping from jail and escaping from places that they had me locked up in was was part of the thing that I wanted to do. And very matter of fact, straight as an arrow in his singing and his storytelling and even speaking about his own life. And when we come back more, this unique life, this unique American life, Merle Haggard celebrated more after these messages. This is Our American Stories and more of our best of of the year from Our American Stories after these messages. like living right and being free We don't make a party out of loving But we like holding hands and pitching woo We don't like the hippies out in San Francisco do And I'm 
proud to be an Okie from Muskogee. A place where even squares... This is Our American Stories. And this is a part of our best of wrap-up of the year. The very best segments. From the arts to history, well, to music. Just about everything. And these are the ones you've told us are your favorites. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And Merle Haggard is the life we're celebrating today. Born and died on the same day. And a countercultural figure to the counterculture. That's what was going on in that song, in that space, in his country. And later, Merle would pull it back a little bit, saying, look, I, I had no animus towards pot smokers, and I had no problem with people disagreeing with the war. But when you start spitting on my soldiers, when you start dishonoring the entire country, well, you're, you're going to get, as he said, on the fighting side of me. That's another one of his great songs. So he's in and out of institutions, He's lost his dad at an early age. One day, he saw the light. No, no, what I was doing, I, I really kind of was crazy as a kid, and then all of a sudden, you know, and, and while I was in San Quentin, I just, uh, I one day understood that I saw the light, and I just didn't want to do that no more, and I, I realized what a mess I'd made out of my life, and I got out of there and stayed out of there, never to go back, and went and apologized to all the people I'd, I'd wronged and tried to pay back the people that I'd taken money from, borrowed money from, or whatever. And I think when I was 31 years old, I paid everybody back that I'd ever taken anything from, and, uh, including my mother. Including his mother, who we're going to talk about a little bit later. He was also lucky that while in prison, he was actually talked out of going on a final escape. I think that uh, these... Friends of mine talked me out of going on that escape. I mean, they they, they felt that I had talent, and they mm-hmm. they felt that I was just a honorary kid, and and uh, could probably make something out of my life. And and you know, believe it or not, in in the penitentiary, just some pretty nice people, and um, very unfortunate people, and they love to 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 let somebody. Uh, so to speak, get up on their shoulders. You know, they like to boost somebody over the wall if they can. If they can't make it themselves, they, I think, sincerely love to see someone else make it. And then it was life after prison, and he had developed a talent for music in prison. He had developed a love of music. We're going to get into that in a bit, and him seeing Johnny Cash while he was in prison. But here's a clip of Merle talking about life after prison and getting into music. When I came out of the penitentiary, I went to work for my brother digging ditches and wiring houses. We had he had an electrical company, um, Hag Electric, and uh, he was paying me eighty dollars a week. This was nineteen sixty, and uh, I was working eight hours a day there. And and um, I got me a a little gig playing guitar four nights a week for ten bucks a night. There was a little radio show that we had to broadcast from this little nightclub called. High pockets. It just all started from that. Uh, uh, some people that was local stars around the, heard heard me on this radio program and came down and offered me a better job in town. And it wasn't just a matter of weeks till I was part of the 
the main clique in Bakersfield, and it was hard to get in that clique. There was a lot of people like Buck Owens, and there was people that that were really good uh, and proved how good they were later on with their uh, success. And Bakersfield was some sort of a, I don't know, it was, it was like uh, country music artists found their way to Bakersfield and then and had the success out of there. I don't understand why, actually, and maybe because of the migration that took place in the 30s or whatever. There was a lot of people that came out there from Oklahoma and Arkansas and Texas that had a lot of soul. And uh, this thing we call country music kind of came out of those honky-tonks, you know, and uh, some of the same area that a lot of other things came out of. Yeah, he was right about that mix and that time and that place. And it's happened in American music many times. Yet Seattle and the grunge movement. Look at New Orleans and the ascent of jazz, blues, Chicago, and the connection between the Mississippi Delta and these folks just going straight up 55 to Chicago. And the next thing you know, this city is the blues city. In New York, you could look at the heyday of jazz in the 50s where Miles Davis and John Coltrane are occupying maybe five to six square blocks of city space with the vanguard and and these these spots where legendary jazz musicians descended, and so on and so forth. So how does he adjust from prison to success? You know, a lot of people may, may or may not understand how hard it is for a person coming out of an institution, you know, whether it be a prison or whether it be a some sort of a mental institution, whether it be the Army or whatever. Um, there's a there's a thing that happens like when you leave the penitentiary and you've been there for three years you have friends and you have a way of life and you have a routine and and a a whole way of life that you just give up all of a sudden one day you're there and you're next day you're not there and you don't have any more friends from the outside because things went on when you left and you can't find anybody there and the people you left behind in prison uh, are you really only, are really your only friends and and uh, there's a period of adjustment that took me about 120 days, I don't know, about four months. A couple of times I really wanted to go back. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's really a, a weird sensation. It's, a, it's the loneliest feeling in the world about the second night out of, pen, out of the penitentiary. And this is what makes Merle special in the end. is just forthrightness about things that many people wouldn't admit. I think it's why we love Shawshank Redemption. Uh, even if we've not been in prison, we've been in that place where we know something really well, and then we've got to go somewhere else. We're dislocated. I had immigrant parents. They always reminded me of what it was like to leave a place like Lebanon and come here. They said it was the loneliest year of their life, and they wanted to go back, and they were scared, and they were nervous. And that's why when we see Red hanging himself in Shawshank, you can watch that once a week and still cry, because there's a little part of you in that guy, and if there's not, there's something wrong with you. And so this is, again, what made Merle Merle. Let's hear from himself about why he thought he was such a special writer. I'm pretty ordinary, and and the music is about ordinary people. And that's what made him special. And he believed it, and he lived it. And my goodness, he wrote about it. When did he know music might be something he was good at? I think I must have been at least 12 or 13 years old probably before I realized that that I might uh, I might have something that everybody didn't have and, and 
uh, I had a good ear, and I and this, that violin teacher, when I was very young, remarked about my ear, and I, I remembered that. I knew I had a good ear. But uh, being without a great education, I knew that there, I needed a little help from somewhere, and music was the thing for me. I knew it was powerful. Again, we hear that over and over again, that, that word of a teacher, that word of one person. Remember, we did that Jerry Kramer clip where Coach Lombardi sits down and I know you can be the best offensive lineman in the history of the NFL. And you hear Jerry Kramer 30 years later remembering it like he was a young man and how that powered him and fueled him. And just remember, your words matter, as Pat Williams always tells us. And that, that word of encouragement to somebody, it lasts a lifetime. And so what song catapulted his career? It was Sing Me a Sad Song, and here's Merle on how he got his hands on that song. I was working in a nightclub in Las Vegas, and Wynn Stewart was the band leader, and he had that song. He wrote it. And he'd had about eight or nine country hits in a row, and he was fixing to record that again. And I cornered him one night, and I said, Hey, I said, Wynn, I said, would you, if you had a chance... And it was within your power. Would you? Would you? Would you make me a star? And he said, "Well, of course I would." You know. I said, "I think it might be within your power." I said, "If you'll let me have that song, sing me a sad song, I believe I can record a hit on it." Well, I did, and it and it went went to number nineteen in the Billboard charts. And here's that song. And again, the generosity of a man he knew catapulted his career. This is Our American Stories, and this past year, Merle Haggard died, and we celebrated his life for an hour earlier this year, and we wanted to bring it back to honor his life and celebrate this remarkable musician and storyteller. It's because She's not here Sing a sad song And sing it for me This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More on Merle Haggard after these messages. She told me so I'm unhappy Without her And I still this is our American stories and all this week we're playing the best of the past year stories that you've told us are your favorites and we're bringing them right back to you and that's Merle Haggard a distinctive voice straight as an arrow simple writing a legend and we were just talking about his life in prison the special talent he knew he had that God had gifted him And a violin teacher had pulled it out of him and reinforced it. 
There was another person who had a big impact on Merle's life, Johnny Cash. Well, when I was doing a little stand away from home, Johnny Cash came to the to San Quentin and played uh, there on New Year's Day, 1958. And uh, some years later, skip forward, I was doing his television show. And he was talking about his performance at San Quentin in 1958. He said he... He said, I remember I wasn't even able to sing. And he said, I got a a good response. I said, I remember that too. He said, what do you mean you remember? You weren't in my band. I said, no, but I was in the audience. <laughs> no, but I was in the audience. And here's Merle talking about a song that he loved, The Fugitive. Well, I was playing in Sacramento one night, and I'd had a couple of hit records would say that went into the top five. But I hadn't had a number one record yet. And uh, played in Sacramento, and this lady came to the show, and she had these songs, and she wanted us to go out and let us hear these songs and cook breakfast for us, and I didn't want to go. And my brother talked me into it. Got out there, and she sang me about five number one songs. And uh, The Fugitive was one of them. And uh, her name was Liz Anderson, and her husband Casey Anderson. They were they were songwriters, and, and so she was responsible for for giving them my first number one song. My younger days While mama used to pray My crops would fail Now I'm a hunted fugitive With just two ways I'd run the law Or spend my life in jail I'd like to settle down A fugitive must be a rolling stone Down every road there's always one more city I'm on the run, the highway is my home But I can't afford the luxury Of having one I love to come along She don't slow me down And that catch up with me For he who travels fastest 
goes alone I'd like to settle down But they won't let me A fugitive must be A rolling stone Down every road There's always one more city I'm on the run The highway is my home I'm on the run The highway is my home And I love that Merle credits the writers Liz and Casey Anderson just as Sinatra credited the writers, the orchestrators, without these songs, Merle wouldn't have been Merle. You know, I had a friend of mine who was a traveling salesman, and he never went to prison. He never had a rough and rugged life, but this was his favorite song, and he always told me it was a lyric, he who travels fastest goes alone. And he, was a, he had a dynamic tension in his life. He wanted to be a multimillionaire, and he wanted to have a family. And the millionaire part went out, and he lost his family. And I think the appeal of Merle's writing is that it's not just literal, that you can understand and relate to just the very straightforward nature of how he wrote about loss, conflict, and love. Here's Merle on storytelling and songwriting. It's a combination of things that I look for. I want, I want to say something in a way that it hasn't been said, maybe but still has a, a profound, it's still a profound statement. You know, we want to say I love you in a, in a different way. And I don't believe there's any subject that can be a love song. You know, that if I could choose any subject that I could write about, I'd want it to be about love because that's really what we want to write about, I think. Most current day writers, I think, are trying to, Say I love you. Yeah, I think that's what we're all writing about in some way, shape, or form if we write. What kind of impact did his success have on him as a person? I don't know. I can't separate the personality from, you know, I am what I am. I do what I do, and that's it. I go out to the bus, and and I'm just dad and grandpa and, and darling, you know, to my family, and, and they accept the fact that, this is what I do, and, and uh, I probably won't touch the guitar again or play again until we go out in the uh, middle of next month. Me and Willie go have a tour set in the East. And um, I used to play at home all the time, but I don't play anymore. And uh, so the family, I'm just uh, another old retired gray-haired gentleman hanging around the house. And how did darkness impact his writing? I look for those moments. I live for the moments that are spine tinglers, uh, you know, raise the hair on the back of your neck, little things that occur, somebody says at the right moment, that explains a lot of things, you know, and you look for those things to write about. It's... uh, 
I hope the door is always open when when something goes by and I'm, I hope I'm aware, of it, able to catch it and write about it. But that's an effort. Most of the songs that I've written that have been successful, you might say were given to me. I mean, I, I can't really remember sweating them out. You know, they, they kind of handed to me. And when we come back, we're going to hear about how one of the songs Mama Tried was handed to him. And we're going to talk about his mama before we talk about the song. Mo Haggard's Life, Our American Stories. More after this. Not feeling any pain at closing time. But tonight your memory found me much too. Couldn't drink enough to keep you off my mind. me down and let your memory come around the one true friend I thought I'd found tonight the bottle let me down I'm from a poor family and um when you lose half of the, the house, uh, my father died when I was nine, so my mother was left with the entire operation, which wasn't much, but I don't know how it could be any further down than, than I was. I mean, we were, uh, we didn't have no sidewalks, we didn't have no clock tower. And that's Merle Haggard. And this is the thing about America. Coming from almost any circumstance, you can end up almost any place. And Merle always had a sympathy and an ear for ordinary folks and for people left behind. Because he knows, but for the grace of God go I, it could have been, well, his life could have turned in a hundred different directions. And a lot of them not good. And even in prison, he had help from prisoners who stopped him from making this final escape when he was at a prison where if he made an escape from that prison, it could have had dire consequences. So let's talk about those songs that he said were handed to him. What does that mean, having a song handed to someone? Here he is talking about another hit of his, Mama Tried. I don't remember writing it, but I did. I wrote it, and, and it says things that are kind of silly and kind of profound, but yet they... They match feelings all over the world. Uh, people tattoo it on the side of their neck. Mama tried. Uh, I think a lot of people feel like their mother wasn't able to do all she wanted to, you know. First thing I remember knowing was a lonesome whistle blowing and a youngin's dream of growing up to ride on a freight train leaving town, not knowing where I'm bound, and no one could change my mind but Mama tried. 
one and only rebel child from a family meek and mild. My mama seemed to know what lay in store. Despite all my Sunday learning, towards the bad I kept on turning till mama couldn't hold me anymore. I turned 21 in prison, doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but mama tried. Mama tried, mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I denied. That leaves only me to blame, 'cause mama tried. Dear old daddy, rest his soul. Left my mama heavy load. She tried so very hard to fill his shoes. Working hours without rest, wanted me to have the best. She tried to raise me right, but I refused. And I turned twenty-one in prison, doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but Mama tried. Mama tried. Mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I denied. That leaves only me to blame, 'cause Mama tried. And what lyrics? Despite all my Sunday learning. Towards the bad, I kept on turning, so Mama couldn't hold me anymore. And by the way, he puts all the blame square on himself, and it's not a lament; it's just a description, and it's why the song is so powerful still. And it's just a perfect story, and it's so economical, and it's so tight, and it's so simple. And try doing that. I dare you to try and write a song like that. You'll spend your whole life and never come close. Here's Merle talking about his mom. I can't imagine what she went through. Now was, I've got six children of my own, and I can't. I really—it's not just a f- phrase. I really can't imagine what she went through. It must have been awful. Must have been awful, and you had to see his face during this interview. And by the way, we're getting a lot of this sound from Dan Rather's really superb work here. Um, and he's done a bunch of interviews with artists that are as good as good can be. And so, why do you keep touring and playing, Merle? Well, I'm scared of the loneliness. It'll get awful quiet, awful quick. If you want to be left alone, they'll leave you alone. People leave you alone. But you don't want that, and I don't want it either. I mean, we want to be what we have been all of our life, and we want to continue, and we don't want to ever die. And you know that's the the next big event once you retire. It is the next big event, and it came. And we're celebrating the life of Merle Haggard, born and died on the same day. In his own words, as we like to do as often as possible, here on our American stories, bring you these lives directly from the people who live them. Here's Merle on a subject I think we all know: loneliness. Loneliness is is a terrible thing, and you know the older you get, the fewer people you know. I mean, you think about somebody ninety years old; they don't know anybody that's older than them. 
you know, and it's, it's got to be a, a much better life if you're Merle Haggard with uh, a big fan base trying to play and try to keep your craft up to, up to standards. And I think that keeps you alive. It does for him. And he said, think about it. Someone who's 90 years old doesn't know many people who are older than them. And it's true. And by the way, we love, look, I love hearing the talk about millennials and millennials, and I'm hoping lots of millennials are listening. But my goodness, sit down and talk to a 90-year-old and sit down and talk to a 20-year-old. Who's more interesting? And it doesn't mean 20-year-olds aren't interesting. But too often in life, we push the 90-year-olds out. And here on this show, we're going to hear from old people and young people and every kind of person. And listening to Merle's, just Merle's raw emotion here is something. Here's Merle on the song Send Me Back Home and why he thinks it's one of his best songs. Sing Me Back Home is one of my best songs, there's no doubt about it. I think that even people that, uh, that have never been to jail know somebody that's been to jail. And they have an imagination of what it might be like. Someone can arrest you for something you didn't do and you go to prison. If you weren't Dan Dan Rather, you wouldn't get out. There's people all over this nation doing time that didn't do anything. I think that would be a terrible thing. And that ended that interview with Dan Rather. And if you want to hear that in its entirety, and I think it's important to see it, to see the expressions in Merle's face, um, it's something. And uh, just Google Dan Rather and Merle Haggard, and it'll pop right up to the top, and hopefully we can really push a lot more views to that. And there was a great piece written in the Wall Street Journal by Eddie Dean called The Right Inside of Merle Haggard. I wanted to hit just a piece of it, and then we're going to go out with the song we started this hour with and the song that Merle thought was his best, and I, I think it is too. In Footlights, the dour downer of an opening song on his 1979 album, Serving 190 Proof, Merle Haggard sings about having to perform on stage when the inspiration's gone. He was 41, and he looked like he was drinking plenty of hard stuff after his run of country hits had dried up. But the song is more than a lament about midlife crises and the grind of the road. It's about a crisis of faith. For Haggard who died Wednesday at age 79, music was a sacred calling. Now he had to face the fact that it had just become a job. The muse had left the building. He later explained the song's origins. Minutes before a concert, Haggard was told that his boyhood idol, honky-tonk singer Lefty Frizzell, had died. He played the show and felt like a sellout to show business fakery. As he later put it in that song, Quote, tonight I'll kick the footlights out and I'll try to hide the mood I'm really in. This sort of candor was and still is rank blasphemy in country music, a business where bloodshot eyes aren't allowed on camera and a big smile at meet and greets with fans can often be as important as talent. It was this brand of to hell with them honesty that set Merle Haggard apart. from the herd for his entire career. He was a child of the Depression. He was unafraid to write and sing about the Depression and about all other things. Loneliness, 
love, loss, and death. Subjects usually swept under the rug in country music. And also subjects like prisoners and personal failure and alcoholism and racism. Merle Haggard's life. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. Sing me back home before I die. Sing me back home before I die. This is Our American Stories, and today we're going to bring you some of the best of Our American Stories from the year. She was a shooting star, a magician whose magic wand was a gun. Right-handed, left-handed, on a horse, through a mirror. She couldn't miss. At a time when women were only expected to fire up the oven, Annie Oakley fired her way to fame as the world's greatest sharpshooter. In her personal life, she was a sharpshooter as well. She was devoted to her marriage and to her faith. She was a Christian, and it's no wonder that Annie Oakley inspired scores of books and movies and the Broadway musical, Annie Get Your Gun. But as you're about to hear, the reality, well, it's even better. In 1865, a fierce blizzard swept into western Ohio. Phoebe Ann Moses, the fifth surviving child in a poor Quaker farming family, waited for her beloved father to come home from the mill, 15 miles away. It was midnight when Jacob Moses finally returned. His hands were frozen solid, his speech gone. He never recovered and died a few months later. Phoebe Ann, or Annie, was just five years old. The family soon lost the farm. Bills piled up. They were destitute. To ease the burden, Annie's mother Susan had to sell the family farm and pet cow just to pay the medical and funeral bills. Here's the grandniece of Annie Oakley, Bess Edwards. Annie stepped in and she saved the family. They were hungry. Rather than be hungry, what are you going to do? If you have a talent like hers, you make use of it just as fast as you can, and she did. The eight-year-old Annie took it upon herself to provide food for her family, who now leased a smaller farm. She reached for her deceased father's Kentucky rifle hanging above the fireplace, rested the barrel on the porch railing, and shot her first small game, a squirrel. I was eight years old when I took my first shot, and I still consider it one of the best shots I ever made, Annie Oakley. I guess the love of a gun, she recalled, must have been born in me. 
In spite of Annie's efforts, her family's financial situation worsened, forcing her mother to place the children with friends and neighbors. Ten-year-old Annie moved into a shelter for the destitute. Here she learned to sew and embroider, a skill she would practice the rest of her life when she wasn't shooting. Soon she was hired out to work as a live-in helper for a family in a neighboring county. Everyone thought this was going to be an improvement, but it turned out to be absolutely nightmarish situation. She never mentioned their name again in the rest of her life. She referred to them as the wolves. They locked her in closets. They worked her half to death. One day, the farmer's wife, the wolf, Mrs. Wolf, throws her out in the snow because she fell asleep while she's doing some darning. Suddenly, the she-wolf struck me across the ears, threw me out into the deep snow, and locked the door. I had no shoes on. I was slowly freezing to death. So I got down on my knees, looked toward God's clear sky, and tried to pray. But my lips were frozen stiff, and there was no sound. They told her folks, in fact, they told her mother that she didn't want to go home. They told her that uh, her mother didn't want her back. After three miserable years in 1872, 12-year-old Annie Moses could bear it no more. She ran away, slipped into a crowded railroad car, and made her way back home to her mother in Greenville, Ohio. Susan Moses had remarried, but the family was still desperately poor and a mortgage loomed over their heads. Instead of going to school, Annie taught herself to shoot. With her father's old cap and ball rifle, she headed for the woods to hunt. There, in what she called the fairy places, she began her lifelong love for the great outdoors. Annie preferred moving targets to sitting ones. It gave them a fair chance, she reasoned, and made me quick of eye and hand. Soon, she was selling hampers of quail to Katzenberger's general store in Greenville. Young Annie was now the family breadwinner, earning a living with her gun. She was a market hunter and turning a very nice profit. Certainly not something that was at all appropriate for a woman to be doing in that time and place. Eventually, she saved up enough money to pay off the $200 mortgage on the family farm. And her prowess with the shotgun was becoming known around Greenville. Annie wasn't just good for a girl. She was good for anybody. Annie was exceptionally good. Her father had given her instructions. He was the one that told her, always shoot game through the head so that you didn't spoil the meat. By her late teens, Annie had won so many turkey shoots that she was barred from entering them. In the 1870s, shooting well was an important skill for a man, and shooting contests were a favorite spectator sport. Sharpshooters traveled the country, betting on their ability to perform feats of marksmanship and challenging all comers. Shooting was of such immense popularity that there were professionals. Doc Carver, the evil spirit of the plains is what he was called. Captain Bogardus, 
who eventually had four sons who traveled with him. And people were flocking to see shooters like this. One such shooter was Frank Butler, an Irish immigrant in his mid-twenties. Butler was just starting to make a name for himself on the vaudeville circuit. He was passing through southern Ohio one fall, claiming he could outshoot anyone around. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this story of Annie Oakley, who died on this day in history in 1926. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories and more of our best of of the year from Our American Stories after these messages. American stories and all this week we're playing the best of the past year and we're talking about the life of Annie Oakley sharpshooter legend and pioneer in so many ways and if you've seen the Broadway musical Annie get your gun you kind of sort of know the story but this is as Paul Harvey liked to say the rest of the story we now return to where we left off with this world-class female shooter and a world-class shooter, Frank Butler, who was passing through Southern Ohio, claiming he could outshoot, well, anybody. Frank is staying in a hotel in Cincinnati, and he starts talking with a bunch of farmers. The farmers say, hey, we have someone in our county who's a really good shot, and we're going to bet 100 bucks that this person can beat you. Butler laughed, but he needed the money. The match was on. Frank Butler, this already professional shootist, shows up for this match with hundreds of people watching. And who is it that uh, comes as his opponent but a a 15-year-old girl who is only uh, 5 feet tall and weighed 100 pounds? Butler recalled. I almost dropped dead when a little slim girl in short dresses stepped out to the mark with me. I was a beaten man the moment she appeared. Right then and there, I decided if I could get that girl, I would do it. Frank Butler, 1924. They shot evenly for 25, for 24 birds, and on the 25th bird, he missed. Uh, But he was a very gracious loser. He, uh, He thanked her for the match, complimented her on her skill, and then courted her for a year. There's a charming little girl. She's many miles from here. She's a loving little fairy. You'd fall in love to see her. Her presence would remind you of an angel in the skies. And you bet I love this little girl with the raindrops in her eyes. Frank Butler, 1881. He was in his 20s when they met. She was 15. And yet within a year, they were married. He made himself appear safe to her. He clearly admired her. He sparked and courted her as few of us have ever been sparked or courted and every one of us would like to be by someone. And she was lucky to find him, and I think he knew he was lucky to find her. For the next six years, however, while Butler and his shooting partner John Graham performed on the vaudeville circuit, Annie stayed in the background. That was about to change. 
The story is that Butler's partner, a fellow named Graham, was ill, and she was called up as a member of the audience and was so obviously good at it and so charming and such a novelty to the audience that Graham was never heard of again. At some time, she adopted the name Oakley as a stage name, and nobody knows why, and uh, Butler and Oakley became a shooting sensation. From that day to this, I have not competed with her in public shooting. She outclassed me. Frank Butler, 1925. When the shooting team of Butler and Oakley hit the road, traveling entertainment was in its heyday. Circuses, theater companies, and vaudeville acts traveled the country, playing venues from outdoor arenas to smoky saloons. For Annie and Frank, it was an exhausting life of noisy train rides, seedy hotels, and one-night stands. Their shooting act might be sandwiched in between a bawdy songstress and a scantily clad acrobat. Variety was a largely male-oriented form of entertainment. There was a great deal of double entendre and comedy. Uh, there were suggestive lyrics and songs. Uh, and there was a good deal of semi-nudity. The acts could be a tad salacious. It was the Victorian age. Annie Oakley, the Christian girl from Ohio, feared being thought a loose woman. She resolved to set herself apart, both in manner and in dress. She began wearing an outfit that completely covered her body. A calf-length skirt, long sleeves and leggings, and a hat that sparkled with a silver star. Her look became her trademark, and this costume, though distinctive and eye-catching, was as modest as Annie's attitude towards her talent. She made her own costumes. That was very important to her. It was part of her desire to control her self-presentation. She could move easily in them, and yet she looked, uh, she looked respectable. She looked childlike. The women in the West uh, were just like the men, entrepreneurial, courageous, bold, adventurous, intelligent. The West really selected and filtered people. The women had to be all those things the men were in spades because they were doing all the same things the men were doing and lacking the same degree of physical prowess uh, that the men had. The women in the West were the very uh, best that America had to offer. Frank soon realized that Annie was the main attraction of Butler and Oakley. In a remarkable reversal of 19th century roles, Frank Butler became Annie Oakley's assistant. I think Frank Butler understood that she had a kind of star quality that he didn't want to overshadow it. And Frank Butler didn't have a problem with that. I think he adored her. I think he also was a savvy businessman who understood that she was pretty, she was ladylike, she was petite. She would do what needed to be done to make that rise to the top. And he didn't want to get in her way. As a matter of fact, he understood that for the two of them, the best thing possible was for to let her take the lead. In 1884, Butler and Oakley landed a 40-week job with Sells Brothers Circus, one of the biggest traveling shows in the country. Finally, they had steady work 
with a clean, family-oriented show. But circus life was hard and the pay unreliable. When the season ended in New Orleans that December, it looked as if Frank and Annie would have to go back to a life of one-night stands and unsavory characters. When the circus season is ending, the very week that Buffalo Bill's Wild West comes to New Orleans, and it's like, wow, the circus is ending, we need a job, so they ask Cody if they can come on with the show. To Annie, it was a dream job. Buffalo Bill's Wild West show was a lavish historical pageant, part melodrama, part circus, part rodeo. And it featured the finest performers in the country. It offered a taste of life on the old frontier to an America that was rapidly industrializing. In the crowded urban centers of the East, people flocked to Buffalo Bill's show, eager for a glimpse of the Wild West. This spectacle was the forerunner of Western movies and TV programs. The whole world was fascinated with the West. And as it was becoming settled, those elements that were seen as the foundation of, uh, of America's uniqueness, um, the rugged individualism and um, the adventure and the conflict with Indians and with, um, and with Buffalo seemed to be coming to an end. Uh, Buffalo Bill was a representative, a living representative of that story, of that adventure. And it's that adventure that he put into his Wild West show. Audiences saw the real stagecoach, they saw real soldiers, they saw real Indians and cowboys. There were horses, there were steer, there were live buffalo. It was into this roiling microcosm of the Wild West that Annie Oakley, the little girl from Ohio, first stepped in April 1885. Cody placed her low on the bill but she soon became an audience favorite. Her 10-minute program combined Frank's vaudeville experience with her talents as a sharpshooter athlete and actress. The result distinguished her from other shooters. Annie didn't just aim a gun and fire, she performed. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Annie Oakley's story, and as always, are this days in history are brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. A great place to study all the things that matter in life, philosophy, history, the arts. And of course, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and check out all of their terrific online courses. When we come back, the rest of this story, the rest of the story of Annie Oakley. This is Our American Stories and more of our best of of the year from our American stories after these messages.
is our American Stories, and all this week we're playing the best of the past year. Our This Day in History segment, and when we left off, we found out that Annie was just very blessed and very lucky to have someone like Frank Butler, who recognized her talents, got out of the way, and just supported her. My goodness, even today that's hard to find, but back then, my goodness, practically impossible. Let's continue with this great story. Ladies and gentlemen, She tripped into the arena. She didn't walk in. She blew kisses. She waved. She was like animated, alive, like this sweet person, but with this big bang gun. She starts off slow, one ball, two balls. Glass balls, which when they're hit, uh, they explode and feathers uh, fly out. Frank would toss up one, and then two at a time, and then three at a time. Then Annie Oakley would toss them up herself. She'd toss two or three or four target balls in the air, grab a shotgun, shoot two, grab another, shoot two more. And she could hit all three before any one of them would reach the ground. Then she'd go to six. Her act gets faster and faster and faster and faster until, you know, it's just like boom, boom. Things are just uh, being broken all around. She could shoot with her left hand, with her right hand. She, like, turns her gun upside down or sideways or sighting in the mirror. One of her favorite tricks was to have Frank hold a a playing card up and she could uh, either shoot through the heart when it was flat against her or if it was held sideways, she could split the card in two, which is a pretty amazing shot. Occasionally she'd miss a shot on purpose and then she'd kind of pout and this was part of the act because she she could always hit the target. She was somebody who never missed. I think it's an innate skill. She said, you know, nobody ever taught me to shoot. I think it was just a love of a gun was just born in me. It was an instinct and a skill and an ability that only persons who have phenomenal vision, have a wonderful sense of timing, who have hand-to-eye coordination, who have good balance and who are really very athletic, because a really good shot has to be a really good athlete. Once Annie's act started getting rave reviews, Cody quickly moved her to the top of the bill. That season, 150,000 people in 40 cities across America saw something entirely new. A woman who could shoot as well as any man while conveying a youthful innocence that, whether Annie realized it or not, was sexy. It was the stuff of stardom. She was this really uh, remarkable, uh, remarkable uh, shot. Uh, But what makes her especially interesting is that she was able to combine that with with an image, with a kind of a vision of American womanhood that was provocative, but that many people felt comfortable with. One reviewer wrote, She handles a shotgun with an easy familiarity that causes the men to marvel and the women to assume airs of contented superiority. Springfield, Massachusetts, Republican, 1897. She had some sort of magnetism that, uh, that can only come from within. In private, she was quiet and reserved. But in public, she could reach the masses. Annie Oakley's celebrity grew 
when the Wild West spent the summer of 1886 in an arena on Staten Island. Half a million people sailed past the new Statue of Liberty, then rode on special trains straight to the Wild West. It was the most popular attraction ever seen in New York, and Annie was now becoming as famous as Buffalo Bill himself. Frank became Annie's press agent, playing on the deep fascination Easterners had with the Old West. He advertised his Ohio-born wife as the girl of the Western Plains. And he never tired of telling the story of the night Chief Sitting Bull, the old Sioux warrior, asked if he could adopt Annie, after watching her shoot the Ace of Hearts out of a card at 30 paces. When Sitting Bull first saw she had these amazing abilities, you know, to, uh, to handle a rifle and her keen eyesight, then obviously she had some endowed power of some sort that he recognized immediately. When Indian people look at such individuals that have been empowered like that, then we have the greatest respect. Sitting Bull christened his new daughter, Little Sure Shot. For a time, he toured with Annie and Buffalo Bill's show, but the great chief soon left, saying he had grown sick of the noises and the multitudes of men. When Buffalo Bill's Wild West opened in Madison Square Garden in the fall of 1886, Little Sure Shot became the darling of Manhattan. She performed before 6,000 people, many in evening dress. The mistreated, half-starved little girl from Ohio had become an icon of the American West. There was probably never a woman in the history of the United States who was better equipped to take up the challenge of creating a legend, of creating a myth of the Western woman, and then embodying that myth with the kind of ladylike demeanor that would make her acceptable. It is a remarkable creation in American legend. In March 1887, Cody's Wild West Troop sailed from New York Harbor, bound for London, to perform at Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. Their ship was a veritable Noah's Ark. The hold was packed with horses, buffalo, elk, and mules. Dozens of Native Americans huddled together, bracing for the first ocean voyage of their lives. Clustered in the bow were Buffalo Bill, Annie and Frank, but also Cody's new discovery, 15-year-old Lillian Smith, a sharpshooting sensation from California. Lillian Smith was an expert with a rifle, so much so that Cody himself had said he would pay $10,000 to anybody who beat Lillian Smith at rifle shooting. She and Annie couldn't have been more different. Whereas Annie was modest, ladylike, and reserved, Lillian flaunted her ample figure and liked to brag. Even before they reached London, Lillian had been boasting. Now that I'm with the Wild West, she declared, Annie Oakley is done for. Lillian Smith tended to speak very coarsely and she was uh, kind of rakish. She liked to hang around with the cowboys. And she had this bodice that said champion rifle shot of the world. It was clear that the Wild West wouldn't be big enough for both of them. Lillian Smith really shows how competitive Annie is. 
She's worried because Lillian's 15 years old, Annie is 26 now. Suddenly, when you start reading the press releases, Annie becomes younger than she has been. She now starts telling people she's born in 1866. Now she's 20 and she's more, she can compete a little easier with this new girl in the Wild West show. She's practical, she does what she needs to survive. On May 9th, 1887, when the Wild West show opened in London, Oakley and Smith were given equal billing. 10,000 eager spectators clamored to get in. The crush and fight and struggle to reach the gates was something terrific, reported the London Evening News. In attendance were leading British intellectuals, such as playwright Oscar Wilde and many of the crowned heads of Europe. Annie particularly was a figure that Europeans welcomed because on the one hand she represented the the wild western girl but at the same time she was a Victorian woman who was there after all to meet the woman who created the Victorian era and when we come back the final segment in this hour-long segment on the life of Annie Oakley Imagine that. She's in London, an international superstar, and folks like Oscar Wilde are crashing in to see her. More after these moments. This is Our American Stories, this day in history, the life of Annie Oakley. And more of our best of, of the year, from Our American Stories, after these messages. our American stories and all this week we're playing the best of the past year. Let's pick up where we left off. The most important shooting event in England was the annual rifle competition at Wimbledon and the big name American shooters were invited to compete. Lillian Smith was the first to arrive. She shot poorly and left in a huff. The next day Annie Oakley appeared. Annie does great, and she does it with a rifle. And Lillian's supposed to be the rifle expert. Annie's the shotgun shooter. So she has upstaged Lillian Smith, kind of beaten her at her own game. When a distinguished sports editor in attendance praised Annie's ladylike bearing above her shooting, she considered it the best compliment she ever received. Whether it was over Lillian or Annie's rocky relationship with Buffalo Bill, in late October, the London Evening News printed a stunning announcement. Annie Oakley would sever her connection with the Wild West voluntarily, following their final London performance that very evening. Two years passed. Then in February 1889, much to Annie's surprise, Buffalo Bill was planning a trip to Paris and wanted her back. They needed her. They needed her more than they thought they needed her. And so whatever rift there was is mended. And interestingly, Lillian Smith does not go to Paris. I mean, we don't know, but it would make sense that maybe that was part of the bargain. I'll come back if Lillian goes. 
Over 30 million people came to the Paris Exposition of 1889. Within sight of the newly erected Eiffel Tower, Buffalo Bill's Wild West played to overflow crowds night after night. On opening night, when Annie made her entrance, she noticed hired clappers. I want honest applause or none at all, she insisted. Annie Oakley was soon the talk of Paris. The French president offered her a commission in the army. When a French duke proposed marriage, Annie literally shot him down, putting a bullet through his portrait. Prince Wilhelm of Prussia was so impressed by Annie's skill that he insisted on participating in her act. He lit a cigarette. From 30 paces, Annie shot it away. If my aim had been poorer, she later said, I might have averted the Great War. And the King of Senegal tried to buy her for 100,000 francs. To destroy the vicious lions that devastate my country's villages, he said. In 1893, the World's Fair glowed with a new marvel, electric light, and showcased another, Thomas Edison's kinetoscope, a primitive device for viewing movies. In 1894, Edison invited Annie and Frank to his New Jersey studio for a test of his movie camera. In dim, smoky images, Edison's camera managed to capture Annie's performance. But the invention also signaled the end of the Wild West shows. By the early 1900s, movies would become the main source of Western entertainment. But for the rest of the 1890s, Annie Oakley and Buffalo Bill were as popular as ever. Then, at 42 years of age, and from out of nowhere, on August 11, 1903, headlines screamed of her downfall. William Randolph Hearst's Chicago newspapers reported that Oakley had stolen a pair of men's pants to buy cocaine. Annie Oakley, the most famous rifle shot in the world, lies today in a cell at the Harrison Street Station for stealing the trousers of a Negro in order to buy cocaine. Chicago American, August 11, 1903. Well, of course, it wasn't true. She was so outraged, it so went contrary to her character, that she sued against every newspaper that had run that story. Uh, and she won in virtually all of them. Hearst had to pay her $27,000, but most of the awards were much smaller. After expenses, she actually lost money over the course of her six-year campaign. But Annie Oakley never left the public eye. She used her celebrity to encourage women to be physically fit and taught thousands to shoot. Throughout her career, she appeared at gun clubs, defeating male opponents who doubted her skill, then taught their wives how to shoot. It was her personal crusade. I want to see women rise superior to that old-fashioned terror of firearms. I would like to see every woman know how to handle them as naturally as they know how to handle babies. She was a very early advocate of women's use of firearms for self-defense. She believed that it was thoroughly appropriate for a one woman to have 
uh, a, a gun at her bedside. And she also argued that women, especially if they had to be out and about alone, ought to think seriously about carrying firearms for self-protection. This is when she starts sounding like a feminist. You know, I think women should have the right to protect themselves and carry a gun. And she even appears in the Cincinnati newspaper article showing how to hide your gun under an umbrella so no one will know you have it. And then if someone attacks you, you can pull it out. Annie never asked for a cent from her 15,000-plus pupils. She would be repaid, she said, if the women became shooting enthusiasts. They did. One, a proper Bostonian, coolly held a robber at bay until the police came to arrest him. She credited Annie for her success. She felt it was very important for women to be able to conduct themselves without fear in a man's world. And she took steps to teach them. As I have taught over 15,000 women how to shoot, I modestly feel that I have some right to speak with assurance on this subject. Individual for individual, women shoot as well as men. Annie Oakley, 1926. Even in retirement, Oakley walked a fine line between being the powerful, self-sufficient woman and the refined Victorian lady. Annie had once offered to lead a company of 50 lady sharpshooters to fight in World War I. But for the most part, she left politics to men. Annie Oakley didn't even think women should be allowed to vote. Although she did not espouse women's suffrage and she didn't talk about all of the issues that were important to the so-called new women of her time, arguably Annie was living a lot of the values that her feminist sisters were arguing for. Perhaps she didn't see herself as needing feminism to achieve what she had been able to achieve. Then, on November 3, 1926, Annie Oakley died at home in her sleep. She was 66 years old. Eighteen days later, Frank, too, was gone. They were buried beside each other in Greenville, Ohio, not far from the ferry places she roamed as a little girl, with rifle in hand. Will Rogers, who had visited Annie just months before her death, penned a newspaper story about his fellow Western performer, that could have served as her eulogy. She is a greater character than she was a rifle shot. Annie Oakley's name, her lovable traits, her thoughtful consideration of others will live as a mark for any woman to shoot at. There's never been anybody like Annie Oakley. There's never been somebody who had both the power of the gun and this power of a kind of sweetness and purity that makes her safe even though she's holding that gun in her hand. From movies, musicals, and television shows to women's self-defense classes, the legend of Annie Oakley and the life of Phoebe Ann Moses reflect the qualities that best define the American character. And great job as always, Greg. The life of Annie Oakley, again, she died on this day in history in 1926. And it is a classic Western story, and we love those stories. In fact, we featured many of them from Phil Anchich's book as well. And go to our website and catch some of them. And they range from 
my goodness, the Levi Strauss story alone uh, is is worth taking a listen to. Go to our Our American Network, and up on the browser, you'll see this day in history. Snap it down and take a listen. And as always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College, a great place to study all the things that matter in life, from philosophy to education to the arts to the sciences. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and you can find so many of their great education series and classes. The Constitution 101 is about as good as you can get. It's 10 hours. Sit down with the family, and over a summer, over a weekend, over Christmas break, or just when you have some spare time, take a listen. Much better than anything you'll catch on TV. And also the 10-hour course on C.S. Lewis is dazzling. Again, this is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch all that we do. The life of Annie Oakley. This day in history, she died in 1926. This is Our American Stories, and this is a part of our best-of wrap-up of the year. The very best segments, from the arts to history, well, to music. Just about everything. And these are the ones you've told us are your favorites. 